Welcome to Centering Centers, a pod network podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. The pod network is North America's largest educational development community, supporting members' professional learning through meaningful and sustained interaction. This podcast is an initiative led by the Digital Resources and Innovation Committee of POD. To get more involved in the DRI committee or this podcast, just send us an email at dri at podnetwork.org. This episode features Dana Grossman-Lehman, Senior Associate Director of the Center for the Enhancement of Teaching and Learning at Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. She will be talking about her experience and reflections on attending the POD conference in Seattle in person this year. We hope you enjoy listening. Welcome, Dana. I'm so excited to have you here on Centering Centers. Thank Um, you. It's an honor to be at here. Well, we're, we're excited to hear about your experience at the conference. I was just telling Dana they started to jackhammer precisely outside my window at this moment, so you all will be able to be in my universe on this podcast. Um, And this is why it's good to be in person and not online, because when you're hopefully in a conference center, you don't hear jackhammering right outside the window. So (laughs) there's a bin of people. So it's one, it's one noise swapping for another. So, so um, let's start a little, just to learn a little more about you and how you got into the work that you're doing now and a little more about your center. Okay. Um, well, thanks again for inviting me to be here. Um, I came to faculty development rather recently. I, I haven't been doing, I, it's been, let's see, almost three years that I've been at Tufts doing educational development full-time. Prior to that, I was at Simmons University in Boston in the School of Social Work as a social work educator, and then also helped launch uh, two online master's programs. And while I was doing that, I was the program director for the online social work program and then helped launch a behavior analysis program. And it was in the process of doing that and, and, and having to interview and hire a huge cadre of faculty that one of the things I realized, and this wasn't actually part of the job description, I made it part of the job description, is that if we wanted to have a really quality program, I had to invest in our faculty. And so I created um, for over 400 faculty different kinds of um, faculty development programs that had everything to do with um, you know, teaching online, like how to create a more engaged and active learning experience online. And in the process of doing that over a few years, I started getting asked to consult other programs that we had a center, but the center was, it was a center of two or one and a half actually FTEs. And they just couldn't take on this huge expanding online universe. So I sort of started doing it. And then I talked to the provost at the time and said, I think you need a full-time person doing this. And I think it should be me. And because I really want to do this. And so prior to coming to Tufts, I was the provost faculty fellow for online education. And my job was to provide faculty development for faculty teaching in seven online master's degree programs. 
And I was pretty happy doing it. I wasn't looking to change jobs or careers. And then I saw the the advertisement for the Tufts position. And I was like, I just wonder, like, I'm going to go for it. And so I'm the Senior Associate Director for Authentic and Engaged Learning. We are a team of tech, generally five in our center. Uh, we're now four because uh, one of our uh, colleagues went up to the provost uh, office to take on a different role, which is it's, it's, it's super exciting. But we have folks who, although we're generalists, each of us has an area that is particularly, we have a focal point of expertise and experience. So we have a, an astrophysicist on our staff and she's mostly focused on STEM and the professional schools and also uh, equitable and inclusive assessment. Uh, another a colleague of mine also comes from STEM, but she has expertise uh, in DEIJ, and this is really an area of emerging uh, research for her. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and my area, because of clinical training, uh, is authentic, engaged, and, and I'm really into transformational teaching and learning and experiential and reflective practices. So that sort of rounds out the staff and we're in the process of interviewing. So we work across the university. Uh, Tufts has a medical school, a dental school, a vet school. We have the co undergraduate College of Arts and Sciences and Engineering. We have the Fletcher School of uh, Law and Diplomacy. We have OT programs, PT. So we have a whole health sciences division. Mm -hmm. We see faculty from across the university. Um, and so, yeah, it's a busy job and we're a small center, but we do a lot. And um, yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. It's, it sounds um it sounds familiar in a way to um, to the university that I'm at, and we also have a social work school. I'm sure you're familiar with Hunter. I'm very familiar with <laughs> I know and, people who teach there. <laughs> yes, and they're actually starting an online uh, social work school, so I hope they're consulting with you. I'm going to tell they them. They are that. not. Uh, but okay. <laughs> there are plenty of other people. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put I'm gonna send someone an email after this. So um probably know that. <laughs> yeah, you, I'm sure you do. Um and it's always really interesting to me to see how people and, and a lot of our listeners have said, you know, it's this part of the podcast is really interesting for people because people come into pod from so many different backgrounds. Um all kinds of different fields and all different stages. Some people do this right out of grad school and some people were instructional designers and move into this. And some people um, like us are faculty and then kind of come to it in, in another stage. Um, so it's really dynamic and interesting to get to know other people in pod and find out their stories because they're not all the same, you know? Um, and I wonder like by going to the conference, what is that like? Do you wind up finding out a lot about just people and how they've come into the work. Um, we want to hear a little more about what is it like to attend the pod conference and how, how was it for you this year in person? So I've only been twice. I, I went a few years ago before COVID and I attended the Institute for New Faculty Developers because I was pretty new and I was yes. a center of one. That was an amazing year. Um, and when I think about that conference, I think about, you know, Michelle Pekansky Brock was in the institute in, in that institute and, and became kind of a really devoted follower of hers and read everything she she wrote and actually stayed in touch with her. Um, I would say um, and 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 found it to be a pretty inviting uh, experience at that time. This time, I would say it was different. I didn't find out as much about people. I think I think that coming back from COVID, first of all, there was a lot I needed to do. 
Um, I, we're also recruiting. So I was talking to people who were interested in the position. I presented, I presented with my team. Uh, I feel like they're, 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 I don't, you know, I think I still don't know who the presenters are that people tend to gravitate towards. So I was trying to get a, a lay of the land in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But also I think that the social piece of it and coming into that environment after having been so isolated was, that was my first conference in person in years. Yeah. And so I think it felt harder to know how to engage. Like I'd sit at a table and start talking to people, but we weren't really talking about Maybe we're talking about the session we were about to sit at, you know, see, or the session we had just done, but I felt like there wasn't as much just kind of hanging out and schmoozing. At least I didn't experience that. And some of it might've been to me being shy, a little bit shy about it. Well, I know, uh, I think it's a good point. I've attended only one in person since my, um, since the pandemic as well in my own field, which is, is TESOL. And um, it was weird. It had a weird energy. It was a little different. I think first of all, people had, there were these stickers of, I, you know, you can hug me or you can shake my hand or you have to stand away from me. It was <laughs> kind of funny, but, um, you know, you weren't sure how to approach people and, um, it's tiring too, to be with people all day. Conferences are always kind of tiring, but I feel like even more so maybe. I, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older, you know, I'm 57 years old and I've been going to conferences for a long time. And I feel like my, also just my energy to be in that environment, it's, it is intense. And I think I, I also feel like too, not that I'm a super shy person, but I think I'm an introverted person. So those things take more out of me. And I think I wanted to also just go to more sessions. I feel like I'm there. I want to take advantage and see as much as I can and do as much as I can. And so I did go to a lot of sessions. And also, also when you have the kind of the, as many of us do this, that sort of looming stress of I'm also presenting and more than once and uh, needing to be at the job fair and talk to people who are interested in this position. Responsibilities there are all these performance demands as well. So it, it, it felt hard to relax in that sense. I felt, yeah, there was a lot I had to manage. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's like, uh, you know, you're spending the evening, like kind of looking through the book, what do I want to see? And um, it's, it's a high energy endeavor for sure. What were some of the, when you were looking through the program book, um, were you able to identify maybe some like themes or topics or threads that seem to be um, trends, you know, this year? Well, I mean, I think the overwhelming one was about DIJ and how front and center that was. And so I think that, I mean, that was just an almost, I felt like it was in almost every presentation, something related to DIJ. And so I think that, you know, and I was actually a reviewer uh, for the the conference. So I was very aware of that going in. Um, I think that, um, I think some of the other, uh, some of the other themes that kind of jumped out at me were, um, conversate, difficult conversations, different kinds of difficult conversations, how to facilitate difficult conversations, but that might've been with faculty, might've been with colleagues. Um, sometimes it was organized around DIJ, sometimes it wasn't. So I'd say those two jumped out. And then I think, you know, there are lots of other different kinds of maybe STEM related conversations that w- were not as, you know, I'm not a STEM person. So I was like, you know, not as compelled by right, those. Right. 
Um, but a few of the ones I went to, I would say, um, uh, one of the most interesting I went to was, was looking at decolonization of academic integrity processes and policies. Hmm. And I went to that because I was like, how are they going to handle this? You know, decolonization yeah. is a tricky buzzword. If you're not giving land back, <laughs> what exactly does that mean in the world? Right. So this was a, a, a trio of faculty developers from Canada. And I felt like, you know, the way they, the way that they just created a culture, the way they managed uh, land acknowledgements, things like that had a very yes. different feel yes. to other, I mean, a lot of sessions did that, but it felt very different in this session, but also I think what made it also the most exciting was I was sitting at a table with people who were actively engaged in doing some of this work. And one person who was at Portland State, she they had been doing incredible work wow. to make academic uh, integrity processes much more equitable, much less white-centered. Uh, it was, I think, listening to her respond to the presenters and then be a part of the, the table conversation made that session. I came back like, that is not necessarily a place that we're going to have much entrance into at Tufts, but I think it certainly allows me to then bring up in conversations with faculty about their own academic integrity policies. How are they writing them? How are they, how are they signaling to them? Interesting. So that was fascinating. I would say that was probably um, yeah, one of the I mean, most interesting I, sessions I attended. Yeah, the uh, it sounds really interesting. I'm thinking of like, before I ask you a little more about like, concretely what did they come up with but um you know first off it's it's kind of neat to go to a session that is um really not something you already are doing because sometimes you go to sessions because you know oh we're doing this type of initiative so let me go see the session that's on this and sometimes it's like I already know this so it you know you want to kind of validate okay I'm on the right track what mm -hmm. we're doing but then sometimes just to pick something that you're not really sure what are they going to talk about um, is it's inspiring and the humility you walk away with, you know, like, wow, people are doing things that I haven't even thought about really doing. And they're already not just thinking about it. They've been doing it and it puts your own institution <laughs> like, in another light. It's fascinating. It absolutely does. And I think it's, it's, I was just curious, sort of, what does this look like, you know, exactly how, how is it actualized, you know, and, and is there a, a way that I could extrapolate some, some idea to bring into our work, um, even though academic integrity isn't really in our wheelhouse, but yet we're part of conversations with departments and programs and deans where it's something we could potentially at least mention, or at least make a recommendation or so I think that I was just super curious about it and so one of the things that we did come away with is they had established a rubric mm. that really looked at different phases of development from not doing anything to being really fully decolonized and what are some of the kind of touch points in terms of action steps what does it look like at these different phases and it was really interesting to sit and really reflect on that rubric to think about where are we and as a person who was a teaching faculty for you know a quarter of a century, I was like, "Whoa, where where would I have been, or where was I? Yeah, and where would I be today if I were teaching uh, a, a teaching classroom faculty again?" And it was that was sort of an interesting uh, reflection point. And so now I have this. I have a couple of you know really helpful 
you know, takeaways that can kind of help to conceptualize. So the rubric but, is more for the faculty member to take a look at their syllabus and look at or what the institution doing, or the or whole the institution student. level. It can be used okay. at micro, macro, uh, micro, meso and macro levels. Um, okay. And it was interesting to talk to folks who were doing things at the macro level. Um, and um, and this this particular colleague uh, from Portland State, it was just it's so interesting listening to how they had entered into these conversations, the way they are involving students. Uh, they have predominantly students of color and first gen at, at their institution. And so it was just, it, I would say those were moments when I was like, wow, I am, I am colleagues with people I don't even know exist who are doing really important, truly important work. And I said, I hope you will submit something and I would love to come see you present because uh, she was presenting about something else, but not about this in particular. And I was like, I would love to hear more about your story. And, well, I'm going to um, get the information. We can invite her to do a podcast. This would be a really cool follow-up <laughs> from this podcast is actually have her talk more about it. Can, can you give us like a concrete, because when we think about academic integrity policies, and um, you know, anti-colonialist frameworks. You know, the only thing that immediately comes to mind is like, you know, um, the idea of plagiarism is sort of a relative well, idea. Who knowledge? Right. Who so, but how, what what's something in there that you like really it stuck with you? Like, oh, I I think it was sort of this idea too of 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 like you know honor codes. Even just like if you have an honor code and, and students are told to sign this statement that says, I, I, I promise that I have not in any way plagiarized or cheated on this exam, mm -hmm. what does that actually mean? And, you know, th that's also there are just lots of differences in terms of what that means culturally. When we when we talk about citations, right. um, you know, it's it's an incredibly um, this idea of owning knowledge that you have. To, I've produced this knowledge. You have to cite me. But did I really produce that knowledge? Like I all knowledge is derivative and it's evolving. And so how if I cite one author, do I need to cite all of the antecedents of that idea? And that's about ownership. It's about a colonization of ideas. And some of those ideas may be, you know, pre um, like colonial and yet we're owning them or, or as our own, but also just the processes are very sort of uh, androcentric, white European centric processes that really do exclude that they tend to be punitive, they tend to be not developmental, they tend to not be empathic. We make a lot of assumptions about people who cheat. Um, and I think that, um, you know, um, it's an interesting conversation too that we have because there was a kind of tendency to try to be more flexible and more compassionate during COVID. And now people were saying, well, we're seeing this uptick in cheating in these particular classes or these particular disciplines. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, what does it mean? What is it signaling to us as educators and within higher education if people are cheating? And this idea of, well, what would happen if you gave more oral exams, if you allowed more storytelling, if people could have the opportunity, if they were caught cheating, which um, is a very top-down way of looking at academic integrity. For, is there a story behind that story? Is there a way for a student to show their knowledge and, and evolving skill in ways that aren't sort of as traditional and Eurocentric and yet still maintain a kind of expectation of rigor and what does rigor even mean? So it's like you can get into these rabbit holes 
I think we go down a rabbit hole of, of, of meaning within meaning, but I still think these things have such profound impact on students. Teachers have deep feelings about them. So I think they merit further consideration. So I think yeah, either way, really, yeah. way going, you know, we take so much uh, about these policies for granted in higher ed, you know, this idea of academic trustworthiness. Well, but where does, where does that derive and what does that signal to people and who feels included in that academic community and who doesn't? And uh, also just the assumptions we make about students from, who are international students who come from different kinds of um, traditions and expectations about what academic trustworthiness looks like. So I sort of just left like, wow, that's this is so complex. It's so multi-layered. And I think that so many of these policies feel reductive and they feel threatening. And do we really want education to be a threatening enterprise? You know, how do we invite students into conversations about all of these, the things that I just said? And so that's really what I left with. That was, I would say, I left a buzz about that and thinking about it for hours and days. I still think about it. And that was weeks ago. So, <laughs> so that's a great test of it. I mean, that's... Uh -huh. um... It's it's interesting, um, you know. We all, we come to everything right from our own experiences and being an ESL teacher for so many years. You know, we always knew that these ideas of not of plagiarism were going to be unfamiliar to our students. Um, and the um, it's it's wonderful to see these kinds of conversations coming out of like different pockets and, and reaching people, I think through, under the like diversity, equity, inclusion kind of umbrella that these are more and more happening because these are the things that are the, the, the hidden curriculum, you know, the assumptions, those are the things that you most have to look at, the things that you don't even think you need to look at, like uh, something like the great, those policies then, like you said, it leads into ungrading and what are we doing and more on and on, but those are great conversations to have. And thinking about those concrete pieces that like this rubric, for example, um, they really scaffold that process for all of us, whether we're doing educational development or faculty leadership, or we are faculty. Um, we need some entry point to begin yeah. to, to look at those. And there's a colleague of mine who's at Northeastern, um, Lindsay Portnoy, and she's pointed me to this gray test. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, it's a really nice kind of, um, uh, it's a way to check your own um, list of citations to make sure that, um, you know, black indigenous people of color are represented in your citations. And um, it, she's a gaming researcher because so much of the gaming is very current um, kind of research. Mm -hmm. And so um, it kind of gets to like, where, where did that knowledge come from? And people, um, just producing so much knowledge at a very rapid pace as well in that field. Um, but I will, I'll post that link in the, in the show notes as well. Maybe if you have that rubric, you can share that too with people who are listening today, because I'm sure people want to take a look at that rubric. Um, and we could get permission of the, the person who shared it with you. Um, because these are all just little ways. I mean, it's just a simple thing to do. And she and I are editing a book right now. We asked all the submitting authors to run that grade test on their own pieces before they submit. And it's just a way to just check yourself. You know, what, what, who are you citing, you know, and how can we expand 
um, voice, you know, for people who have published. Um, so it's all, so this is exciting when you, you have something that you bring back and it's energizing to some new avenue, maybe that you hadn't really taken. Um, anything else that you want to share um, as we kind of wrap up today in terms of your experience at the conference or things you'd want to tell other people or um, anything else that's kind of sticking with you? I mean, I would say that one of the one of the um, sessions I went to, which is actually um, was co-presented by a colleague of mine, was really looking at the profession of educational development and really holding up a mirror somewhat to who actually who was there, you know, who who was visible at Pod and who was absent. And I think that since you know joining Pod and becoming an educational developer. Um, this idea of being a, an overwhelmingly white and often female or female identified profession, a pink collar profession, I think it's been written about, but sort of this idea of, of where, why aren't more faculty developers or educational developers of color coming into the profession? Why don't we see more visibility, diversity at pod? And what is it about both the organization and, and the profession that might be in some ways, um, either a disincentive or or a disinvitation to folks of color, and I think that that that's actually the research they're doing. They they are are starting to do some some work on that and doing some writing, and they've published a bit. I think that's something I thought about a lot, and mm -hmm. I will say in all candor, to see all of this DIJ work centered, but to still see such a white dominated conference. Um, was there was a bit of for me a bit of a kind of a cognitive dissonance yeah and um and and I'm not sure I'm sure I'm not the only one to see that no, I'm sure that. everyone yeah feels that too who does the work too of course yeah and it's maybe and also as I've gone through a hiring process I mean we have we have actually gotten applications from a number of uh, a lot of actually folks um, of color and I think that's been interesting to see that they're there they're out there, but they're not necessarily coming to pod or they're not necessarily coming to pod in person. And so I would say that was one of my takeaways is, is how does, how, how do, if we're in a center DIJ, how do we live it more? Mm -hmm. uh, and being curious about how to live it more and how to shape the profession and the organization so that we really do have the diversity that I think that we want and need and, and that the profession wants and needs. So I would say that was one other takeaway. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's all. Uh, I think that's awesome. a really, um, I mean, kind of circling back to your background um, in social work education and the, um, as you were talking about, you know, initially coming to the conference and of course, seeing like these themes of GIEJ and also, you know, inclusiveness and belonging and all those things that we're talking about to faculty to to generate more of in in our higher ed spaces but um what happens in this space the, the educational development space and i know it's been talked about a lot and it's it's something that's um you know you strongly see that in the the messaging and the um, awards mm -hmm. and the the um but it it's curious how a lot of things do come back to personal relationships. And, you know, I'm just thinking about you at the conference, you know, you who are very experienced and a leader in your, in a, in a great university and a center, not feeling like you could quite always connect on a personal level with people if there weren't those opportunities. So imagine someone who's 
really new or at an institution that no one's heard of. And, you know, um, how do you even get to the conference? You know, so for instance, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in CUNY and there are many um, BIPOC educational developers in CUNY, but there's no funding to go to POD. Um, so you have, you know, who's getting sent? How do you get people just across, you know, more economic diversity of types of institutions, you know, people who are community colleges who do amazing work. Um, are they seen, you know, even doing this podcast, um, Lindsay and I've talked about, it's like really um, interesting because we tend to get people from a little more elite institutions. Mm. And so we need to, we are really trying to figure out how do we get to the people. Some people are not members of pod. So you don't have to be a member of pod to be on this podcast or listen to it. Um, and how do we person by person, like maybe it's a hiring decision you make, maybe it's not that person now, but you can mentor them so that the next job opportunity, they're ready for it. Or how do we lift up other people? And it's really going to be person to person. And it kind of goes back to the reference list. You know, you're just in the same group without having to really just think it's someone else's problem to do that. You know, how do we own it more? Um, and it's also a field that's still a little obscure, I think. So people don't go in knowing that that's what they want to do. They just figure out this is something that happens. Um, when I try to explain to people, oh, I really love doing faculty development. And you know how there are these centers for teaching and learning. And so people don't know anything about it. <laughs> I mean, students go to universities, don't have any idea that there's such a thing on their campus. No, I, I, we see it whenever we do midterm feedbacks, we see that often. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not a, ours is not a student facing center, so they wouldn't really know about that. Yeah, and they're yeah. always sort of surprised, like, wow, um, our faculty actually engage with you and our faculty <laughs> being better teachers or, you know, our faculty volunteered to have you come in and do the midterm feedback session because they want to know how our experience is like. Oh, interesting. Like, I think it, it um, actually, when they do hear about it and then they hear, and I might say like, yeah, your instructor actually engages with us a lot. You know, he's in two learning communities and a book club right now. And they're like, really? So I think it's actually kind of this thing, like, not that it, you know, it's meant to be faculty facing and it's meant to be kind of their space for, you know, growth and things and, and things like that. But I think it, it it is sort of interesting and impactful when students find out that their faculty are learners too. And oh, uh, very much so. <laughs> you're like, really? What else do you do? And <laughs> occasionally we'll have students request. I'm like, you know, this is for faculty. We, we and we actually at IDTUS don't do much with grad students. That's actually a separate entity. So we, and probably because we're such a small center and we have such yeah. a large university, but it is very funny. Like students have no idea we exist. Well, and that's all part of, you know, just elevating the work of teaching and learning in general at, at universities and, and how visible, how recognized is it? Um, and so all of these different entry points, whether we're attending conferences or, you know, things that we're doing on our campus will create more, um, more of a pipeline, I think, as people see teaching and learning as an actual area to focus on in higher ed. Um, we can see more people kind of moving into it. And, and there are a lot of graduate students who already know that they want to do a development. Yeah. We definitely, the when we do interact with grad students, we can see that, that, you know, when they, either when they meet with us or they're having some sort of faculty development um, that's tailored to where they are in the career life cycle, I think that it's starting 
young in their career at the nascent stage that this these things exist these resources exist and they really are there to help you evolve throughout your career life cycle and so I think you know um I agree with you I think that's that's to me those are the students who should know about us even though we're not we don't interact as much with them but they should know what we that we exist because if they leave when they leave and try to get academic positions I've actually said to a few grad students I've I've actually met for for various reasons I've said when you look at the universities um that you're maybe going to interview with see what their teaching center looks like. How robust is it? What do they offer? Who gets to use it? That's important. That's actually a benefit to you that isn't going to be part of your, your package. But if yeah. you go to some place where there's no support for teaching um, and teaching and learning, that's something, you know, it may not influence your decision, but it influences what what resources you can get to grow in your job. You know, and Tufts is a, a research one. So the, the tension between teaching and learning and research, the fact that faculty are as engaged with us as they are is kind of, am is amazing to me. We are really, you know, we are really visible on campus and faculty, a lot of faculty from across the institution engage with us. And um, when I think about how they're not actually rewarded for teaching here, um, that's kind of amazing. It shows how dedicated they are and how devoted they are. It does. It does. And, and what a great center you have, Dana, I'm sure too. Um, and we really thank you so much for, for your really honest and, um, and thoughtful comments about your experience at the conference. And we're going to have um, a couple more episodes hearing about people's experiences at pod this year. And we hope that, um, you know, more people can attend and, the podcast is a great way also to connect. And if you are listening and you would like to share something or you know someone who is doing something really interesting like the, this colleague of Portland State that will track down, um, let's continue to network and share um, this kind of one-to-one um, -one thoughts um, throughout the year. So thanks again, Dana, for being here. Thank you so much. Nice to speak with you. Mm -hmm.